Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm delighted to welcome Ken McNabb back to the pod today to talk about his new book, Shake It Up Baby. Ken's book, much like his previous project and in the end, takes a detailed look at a Beatle year, in this case 1963, and examines the journey that they go on over those 12 months. From the cold nights of the Scottish tour in January to the cusp of world domination in December, what on earth happened in 1963? Ken McNabb, hello, welcome back to the Beatles Books podcast, how are you? Hello, Joe. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, lovely to see you again and see you in such rude health. We are here to talk about your excellent new book, Shake It Up Baby, The Rise of Beatlemania and the Mayhem of 1963. Now, last time you were here, we spoke with great fun and great energy about your book about 1969 uh, and in the end. So a sort of an obvious question is, what made you want to write about 1963, having written about 1969? Well, I didn't really have any plans to do a book on 1963, really, you know. I thought we I, I was kind of finished, really. But uh, the more I thought about the possibility of it, you know what it's like. Sometimes that idea drip feeds into your subconscious. And it struck me that it would be an interesting bookend uh, to actually enter the TARDIS and go back the way, in a sense. And, and of course, you have to do a lot of preparation for it. And the more the more I thought about it, the more I... You know, I, I kind of had to draft it out and, and I wanted to follow, if I was going to do it, I wanted to follow the same style as, as And in the End, which is do a month-by-month month narrative and just try and catch, capture some of the impetus and some of the momentum of that year. But not just to do it really, Joe, as, as a, a Beatles book per se, but to try and take all the different strands that were happening throughout the world in 1963. 1963 is really a year where there was a, a tsunami, if you like, of social, political and cultural change, especially where young people were concerned. I mean, you know, the war the war is, is not really a distant memory. It's only less than 20 years from the end of the Second World War. It's not an awful long time. But this was, this was a, a point in time where young people were more or less coming into themselves and realising that they had... Uh, a sense of self-identity and, and really just trying to establish their own selves in a post-war world. So anyway, I quite like the idea of trying to take all those different strands, if you like. I mean, with the Beatles, you know, everybody thinks they know the story and the story's been well told. My challenge, I felt, was to take all the different strands and all the different loose ends and try and weave them into some kind of cohesive tapestry, if you like, and as well as trying to fill in some of the blanks, you think that the story has been told, but if you're prepared to put in the hard yards and and speak to people, and it's not easy nowadays because, you know, you're talking 60 years down the line, you know, mm. it's only inevitable that not all these people are here. And you're trying to speak to people who were, in fact, eyewitnesses to history because it's the only way to do it. And so I, I was really just trying to capture the essence of what is, in effect, a Beatles origin story as opposed to And In The End, which captured the, the dissolution of the band, if you like. Uh, so we go from Annus Horribilis of 1969 to the Annus Maribilis of 1963, which is their breakthrough year. How different 
was it writing about 69 and, and 63 did each year give you different kind of challenges was it was it easier to write about one or the other they, they both posed different challenges joe and i'll tell you why because 1969 as everybody knows is all about the drama and the angst of what was taking place in the background and all the various cast that was assembled, the clients of this world. There's a cast of characters in the background that formed some kind of drama, if you like. This is a book about four young guys suddenly finding themselves on this roller coaster. And with each month, you see the establishment of another base camp. And the four of them are roped together for the climb. So it's all about, in a sense, trying to harness the energy and the momentum, the excitement, and just the sheer vivacity and the sheer personality of, of what happened throughout 1969 and 1963, rather. It's a, slow, it's a slow burn momentum, but maybe you can see by with each month how the story begins to unfold in, in, in a rapid fashion. We should start talking about Scotland. The Beatles start this 1963 with this quite small tour of Scotland. It would be interesting to look at what their reception was like up there at the start of this, as, as you say, this tumultuous year. What kind of reception did they get? And are there any clues from their time in Scotland as to the, the kind of chaos that was awaiting them? There are very few clues. And the reason for that is because Frankly, nobody had heard of them, or very few had heard of them. I mean, obviously, Love Me Do was played in the radio. When they went to Scotland, Please Please Me as a single hadn't actually been released. And in some places, certainly in the Highlands, it was a very small tour, but in some places in the Highlands, they, they were actually billed as the Love Me Do boys to try and harness some of that marketing impetus from the first single. Um, and, you know, the, the pop charts then are, they were dominated by American crooners in Scotland. You know, they still listen to people like Jimmy Shand playing Scottish country dance music. Acker built Strangers on the Shore. Um, that, that kind of music dominated, really. You know, the idea of them going to Scotland was usually a gigging opportunity to try and get some more exposure, but to really just try and get some experience again as a gigging band. I mean, we all know about how hard they worked in Hamburg. And this was just to take them out of Liverpool, really, and to try and broaden their touring horizons. In a sense, Britain as a whole was enveloped in the worst winter in living memory that lasted from Christmas 1962 to March 1963. So the country is really entombed in frost and snow. So, you know, the conditions are not... I mean, in the north of Scotland, it doesn't take very much to feel cold, and this, this was even worse. So, you know, the conditions for touring are, are not great. But, you know, I think I think they were given a very good reception in a lot of a lot of the places like Aberdeen's Beach Ballroom. It was quite unusual for a band from Liverpool to come that far north. So there's a novelty element to it. Um, and the important thing, the other thing to remember is that they were brought north by a Scottish-Italian man called Albert Benici. And Albert was, you know, not in the first flush of youth, but he was what many would regard as a visionary when it came to putting on pop concerts in the likes of a venue called the Two Red Shoes, I think it was, in Elgin. He showed a lot of bravery, a lot of courage to bring a band like the Beatles up and get them to play in strange venues. And by all accounts, even within those limited venues and those very small venues, they actually went down very well. 
But of course, nobody, when you speak to people who saw them at the time and, and I have done that, then obviously nobody could predict what was round the corner. I mean, just to give you a very, a very basic example, uh, a few days before Please Please Me, they played in a town called Dingwall, a very small town in the Highlands. There were only 19 people there. If you try and track down these 19 people, you end up with 1,900 because they all say, oh, we were there, we were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But by all accounts, there were 19 people who saw them play in this tiny hall days before Please Please Me as a single came out. Meanwhile, 200 yards up the road in, in another hall, there's a local band called the Melatones who are playing before 800 kids and ripping up trees. <laughs> so that shows you what they were up against, and and the sheer anonymity at that time. So after January comes February, and as probably most listeners will know, February sees the day of the Beatles recording most of their first album, Please Please Me. Yeah, it happens in a day. Was that unusual for bands to be forced into into doing that? And how do you think that that way of recording impacted on the album that we all know? I think it depends on the circumstances. I don't think it was entirely unusual. And it really depended on the... You can't imagine at the time Cliff Richards and the Shadows doing an album in a day. It just wouldn't have happened. And the reason for that is... And they were EMI stablemates. The reason for that is because they're an established band. They've got a pedigree and they've also got a track record. Beatles entered Studio 2 EMI Studios with nothing in, in the locker, really. They were unknowns. They were untried, untested unvarnished, ill-equipped to deal really with recording techniques. Uh, but what they did have as a, a huge ally was George Martin. And I think that George Martin was under quite a lot of restrictions at the time because, you know, the Beatles are a big gamble. Nobody knows. I mean, Ma George Martin obviously was a huge fan of Please Please Me and, and obviously saw something in them, but that something in them could amount to anything really, you know. There's a huge risk factor attached to them. So there was clearly, it seems to me that there was clearly an instruction from EMI that said something along the lines of, you know what, we'll record an album, but we're not going to spend any time in these boys because mm -hmm. it could easily backfire. So I think that it, it's not really a surprise, really, that EMI were only going to commit to a limited budget. I think the budget was maybe about £400. I could be wrong there. Somebody will correct me. They weren't prepared to go all out on an, an unknown group of youngsters from Liverpool uh, making their first album. What are the odds of success? It's very evenly balanced. So, you know, to go in for a day, I don't think it was that unusual given the circumstances. It also maybe should be remembered that, you know, everybody talks about the album in a day, but they did already have four tracks in the can. There's a foundation to build on there. Having said that, you're still talking about covering quite a lot of ground in a short period. I think Mark Lewis has described it as the as the greatest. I think three hundred and forty minutes in recording music history, or how long it took them to actually do it. Mm. Um, and I don't think anybody could argue with that assessment. But you know what they did have in the they were battle hardened. I mean, they knew the songs; they'd been playing them for years, so it wasn't such a great step, you know, into the great beyond to be able to do them in a studio because you know, as I say, they were battle hardened; they were match fit. And so they were ready to go. So after February, obviously, comes March. And one of the things I really liked about your book was the stories and the tales around the the Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe tour. 
which obviously I was familiar with, but but your book really drills down on that and adds a bit of bit of flavour to that particular tour, and it, it revealed some kind of tension drama, I suppose you'd say, uh, about the tour, which, which as I say, I, I didn't know about. Tell us about the tour the Beatles did with Montez and, and Roe. How did they react to, to touring with them? Well, that, this was actually the second tour, the second UK tour within a, a period. I mean, virtually one tour, the first one was Helen Shapiro mm. and the tour with uh, Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez virtually seg together. They're only separated by the recording of Please Please Me. Tommy Rowe and, and Chris Montez were established chart stars, although it has to be said that their careers were already beginning to be eclipsed simply by a lack of material and the fact that there was a, a bit of a changing of the guard taking place in music. Chris Montez was sort of American-Mexican whose big hit had uh, Let's Dance, uh, nothing to do with the David Bowie song of the same name, and, and Tommy Rowe's big hit was, I think, Sheila, which the Beatles actually played in Hamburg, uh, and that was a 1962 hit. So, you know, these guys did have some pedigree. And the fact that they're American lends a, a sheen of something else, a new attraction, if you like. But it all started off relatively well because Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez were top of the bill. And when, when the tour was agreed, you know, they'd never heard of the Beatles because who would? In the few short months since that tour was set up by, I think, Arthur Howes, quite a famous promoter. But in the period from when the tour was set up until they actually appeared, the Beatles were really beginning to gain a foothold. And through sheer force of will, I mean, they were beginning to appear on radio, a lot of radio sessions. Uh, they were going to appear in some television programmes. I mean, the thing is about the Beatles is that, Joe, they worked really hard. I mean, they were a real grafting band. They put in the hard yards. They always had done, and nobody could ever fault their work ethic. They could go down to London for a 15-minute radio slot, slot, drive down from Liverpool to London, and then drive back again right away to go and play in Leeds or somewhere. Uh, but the tour with Tommy, Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez did start off very well, but it wasn't too long before there was a bit of tension crept in. I think, I think George used to make some jibes about Montez being the little Mexican, you know, <laughs> and, and I think well that the humour in that begins to wear off. But I think really that the two Americans were slightly hacked off at the adulation. They couldn't believe the the adulation and the reception that the Beatles were getting, even as early as nineteen, as early as March nineteen sixty three, where you can see the page beginning to turn somewhat. But it all came to a head one night in Newcastle because I think the Beatles were celebrating more or less the finishing the album, um, having it ready, prepped to go into the shops. Uh, and it was a bit of an after-gig party. And, and you have to remember, they're four young guys. They're off the leash and they're on the lash, in a sense, right? They're four young guys. I mean, wouldn't you and I do the same? Mm. So anyway, it was an after-gig party and, and Chris Montez... You know, he went back to the tour bus to kind of sleep off the booze. And, and of course, the next thing he knows, he's been wakened by the sensation of John Lennon pouring a pipe over his head. For for reasons unknown to everybody, young Mr. Montez didn't take it very well. And uh, it wasn't long before John Lennon and Chris Montez were squaring up in the middle of the bus. I have to say, I think it was probably handbags at dawn, really, you know. Um, but Tommy Rowe is the only other American there felt obliged to uh, make sure he had his compatriots back. But, you know, Chris Montez did, does talk about it 
quite a lot over the years, but but in equal measure, and Tommy Rose the same, that they always talk about how they were grateful in a sense for the experience of witnessing what was in, es- in essence the birth of Beatlemania mm-hmm. before it really began to take hold in, in the British psyche in a sense, you know. But um, so, you know, there were no hard feelings, Joe. <laughs> That's good to hear. Your book also talks about this notorious May holiday that John Lennon undertakes with Brian Epstein, where they go to Spain and they spend some time there together. One of the great kind of talking points, really, of Beatle history. You've got the Hours and the Times film, which was a dramatisation, a version of what might have happened. It's so often pondered and, and thought about. And your book, obviously looks at it as it has to because it, it happened in 1963 i suppose an obvious question is why do you think john felt the need or or wanted to go on holiday with brian to spain when these beetle buddies were um were off holidaying elsewhere yeah it's one of the great unresolved mysteries of beetle folklore in a sense and everybody knows the story or everybody thinks they know the story so i thought you had to take a bit of an attitude to it And I don't think anybody could doubt, Joe, that this was a dangerous liaison for both men. Mm. When you do a book like this, context is king. In this particular context, it's important to remember that homosexuality is a crime in 1963, a crime that's punishable by a prison sentence. Mm. And John would absolutely have been aware of Brian's homosexuality. There was nothing latent about it. Everybody knew about it. The reason why he went on holiday with him, I think really it boils down to it being a bit of a power grab. It's not unlike the sort of backdoor agreement over the Lennon-McCartney songwriting order, if you like, that hierarchy. Hmm. Um, and Paul's always taken the view that John wanted to impose on Brian his seniority, if you like, and his superiority. John, this was my, this is John's band, and, you know, I'm the guy you come to if you want anything done, if you want to run anything past the lads then you have to come through me. But having said that, it does border on incredulity that he would do it. Now, you know, John made no secret of the fact that on the surface, it was an entirely selfish decision to go on holiday with his homosexual manager just after Julian had been born. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, you know, he's got a wife there that she surely should have come first. But John didn't sugarcoat it. His honesty veered close to masochism. But I don't think that excuses it. He had his own reasons for going, obviously. The fact of the matter, Joe, is that this holiday, if you like, could have destroyed the Beatles without any shadow of a doubt. They're on the cusp of being a chart-topping band. Mm. And had the mainstream media become aware of the fact that the band's alpha male, if you like, was going on holiday with his homosexual manager, you can just hear the sound of Pandora's box creaking all over Liverpool. Um, and it must have been a nightmare for Tony Barrow, uh, who was a press officer at the time, because he would have been away. He was a seasoned journalist, and he would have been aware of the implications had some foot-in-the-door news hound got wind of that holiday. It was a risky manoeuvre, shall we say. Now, as to what happened, and I do, I do want, I think it's important to address that. You know, 60 years have gone past, who cares? And the only two people who could speak to their own truth are no longer here. But it does, I mean, I understand that there's an element of interest out there 
and, and John liked to shock and, and he's told various people at Pete Shot and what might or what didn't take place. But I really don't care. It's an interesting element of 1963. As I say, I think it was very dangerous, playing with fire, really. Um, at the same time, interestingly, as uh, George, Paul and Ringo went to Tenerife on holiday. But it's interesting, Joe, because, you know, and I have no knowledge, and again, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but of all the millions, trillions of words that have been spoken about the Beatles throughout the the decades. I can't remember anybody ever ever really taking John to task for going on holiday with Brian. I mean, you know, it's, it's barely mentioned. Mm. John Lennon was like a, a volcano trapped in ice. Maybe you really don't want to set him off. So maybe they they just gingerly walked around the subject and thought that was John being John. Mm. One of the markers of the, the Beatles' progression throughout 1963 is that by August, they play their last show at the Cavern, which, as most sisters will know, they played hundreds and hundreds of times previously. Uh, your book describes this kind of crazy, sweaty night in that particular cellar. Tell us a little bit about that that final show that the the Beatles did there. Do you think they had, had any inkling that they wouldn't be back at this place that they had so much association with? I think it was an unspoken truth. I think it was... A, the, the, the gig had obviously been agreed months in advance, Brian Epstein's mantra was that, you know, once you make a promise, then you don't break it. And no matter what goes on. So, you know, if we if he has a contract or an agreement to play, then no matter what the difficulties are, you play it. Hmm. They had severe reservations about going back to the cavern. They had actually played before then. And again, I think it was 293 shows. Uh, that would have been their 293rd show. Their first show was in February 1961. And obviously, a lot of water has gone under many bridges since then. So this show was agreed. John Lennon had severe reservations. They all had severe reservations about actually playing a hometown gig because they had that suspicion and that doubt that perhaps the the local fans would see them as having grown too big for their boots, that they no longer were their band in a sense. And the gig was not without its moments of drama. I mean, we all love seeing that clip of uh, some other guy played in the cavern. I mean, I think that's an unbelievable clip. They, mm. they, I think that would have been one of the great venues to have seen them in at that time, where you just catch catch them on the cusp of the last remnants of the Hamburg Beatles to what they became. It's such a great clip, uh, and they sound fantastic. But this gig was not without its its difficulties. As I say, Lennon was, you know, he was apprehensive about playing it. And it was a step back in time for them. I think they maybe felt they had outgrown the cavern in a sense and, and they were looking towards sunnier uplands elsewhere. And of course, sweats dripping off the walls, condensation, it's smelly. You can smell the rotting fruit from one of the warehouses next door. And and of course, with all that condensation, then the electrics are not not UK standards, shall we say. <laughs> it wasn't unusual for the electrics to literally blow a fuse. It happened quite regularly, I think. Uh, but the interesting thing on this particular night uh, was that when the fuses went and everybody had to go and reconnect the, the electrics, so the Beatles do what the Beatles do quite naturally, uh, which is actually to act quite naturally and busk it. And Paul McCartney, of course, being the ultimate showman, you know, he thinks nothing of wandering over to a piano and hammering out a song which nobody, and when I say nobody, not even 
Lennon, Harrison or Starr had heard and he starts to busk his way through this almost like a variety hall, music hall number, just to keep the crowd going. That particular song, of course, wouldn't see the light of day for another four years when it was a track on Sgt Pepper. And of course it was When I'm 64. Lots of interesting nuggets from that night. Uh, but for the fans, I think it was it was their last chance to, the local fans certainly, to say cheerio and farewell and, and we love you to, to the band, you know. And it was a sense, I think somebody did tell me, that in a sense it was like seeing your children suddenly going off to university to to graduate with honours, uh, with a degree in, in life, really. Mm. Your book has some really excellent photos in that kind of bookmark each particular month, each chapter. One of my, it's not that well known, but it's a really excellent picture of the Beatles sat in the London flat of the journalist Donald Zeck an interview that they give in September of, of 1963. You talk about how Zek and, and other journalists start to portray the Beatles in the press. Was it all positive through 63 as, as 63 begins to kind of whirl its way through? Uh, how did they respond to this huge coverage that they were getting? Well, I think they took it initially, they took it in the stride, but I think that, you know, the, the press is split into two camps. You've got the daily newspaper journalists and you've got the music journalists who are a bit younger obviously a bit more hip but more cool but um, I think at, at first the novelty of being in newspapers and you have to remember again that in 1963 newspapers are in essence the primary source of news for everybody including young people it should be pointed out up to that point and Donald Zeck is a case in point I think he was the Daily Mirror's chief feature writer um, you know, you've got these crusty old hacks, Joe, you know. They're a bit like your parents. They almost look down on youth with utter, utter disdain when you weave in uh, popular music into the into the into the equation, then you know, that disdain is just magnified. These guys much preferred Perry Como, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, you know. So I think they were very they were very keen, the newspapers and the media at the time, to try and kill this baby in its crib. So there was, a, I think there was a lot of resentment from the press at the time. And Donald Zeck is a case in point. You can see from the picture, he's a good 25 years, maybe. I mean, even somebody at 25 years, I mean, they look like 40 years older yeah. uh, than them. And, and they were very quick to try and, they were very condescending, very patronising. And this was reflected in, in the kind of material that they wrote about the Beatles it's a very good picture. Actually, the funny thing is that I think the Beatles quite liked the challenge of dealing with the press. And even if they were these old avuncular dinosaurs, if you like, they still liked the idea that Lenin especially, being a great wordsmith, liked the idea of trading barbs, if you like, with them. I don't think they were they were phased in the slightest by them. I mean, the interesting thing, Joe, is that, you know, and we'll come on to this, I'm sure, but by the end of 1963, the press had done this incredible about turn when it comes to the Beatles because all of a sudden, all of a sudden they realised that if they put these guys on the front page, then their sales rocket. So all of a sudden, the somebody had a eureka moment, and I know when that was because we're coming on to it, uh, where they realised that the Beatles were this unbelievable marketing tool. So mm. they went from more or less trying to ignore them and trying to ridicule them to suddenly realising that the, the Beatles equaled sales. So by by some curious 
irony and a quirk of fate, the Beatles were were responsible for Britain's very first tabloid circulation war. Talking a bit about fame, how do you think individually they they kind of dealt with it? The the image of Paul loving the attention, John being, as you say, enjoying that kind of back and forth, George or maybe being a bit a bit grumpy, Ringo kind of just carrying on. Did did, did that fit? fit through 63 or do you think they all at this point it was still fresh enough for them all to enjoy it it was still definitely fresh in their minds tony barrow was uh was excellent he was part of the praetorian guard if you like now around them that included obviously brian epstein george martin and dick james to a degree so they formed this kind of praetorian guard around them Tony Barrow recognised the importance of the press. He used to try and get them together and do one-on-ones with local papers. Having worked in the Liverpool Echo, he understood the how how essential it was to build bridges with the local media. And also, you must remember, they're going out into they're going out into cities and towns all over the country. Their touring schedule was relentless, mm. and at the end of every gig, there would always be somebody from a local paper. And I've been in local papers. I've been hanging around stage doors to try and capture, try and get a word with Phil Collins when Genesis come and things like that. And if you can get two minutes with them, then two minutes can equal a thousand once. And, yeah. and, I, and I get that. So there was still a great attraction, I think. And the novelty had, had was nowhere near wearing off. The press at that time were, they, they had suddenly discovered this new phenom- phenomenon in town and everybody wanted a piece of it. I think the, the national press were the, last to recognise what was taking place. But as I say, if you go to Bradford, there's always going to be somebody there from the local paper. If you go to Harrington, there'll be somebody there from a local paper. They were there at the start of the gig and it would be at the end. But, mm. you know, these are four young guys and they love to talk. Uh, and they did a, they, they were a, a marketing man's dream when it came to the press. There's no, there's no great controversies in 1963, really. Even when there was a controversy, and again, we'll come on to that, Everybody thought John Lennon was just being his usual cheeky chappy self. <laughs> so, uh, as you say, yeah, we we move through the year and we start to get toward the end of the year uh, as as autumn turns to winter. Uh, October, November, see the Beatles play these two huge TV shows, TV moments, where they play Sunday night at the London Palladium, followed by the Royal Variety show beaming them into millions of of homes up and down the the UK. What impact do you think these two performances had on on the Beatles and on on their kind of importance through 1963? These two gigs, Joe, are absolute game changers for the Beatles in 1963. Television at that time is still a medium, still relatively in its infancy. Um, You know, there are obviously a lot more people have access to television. Um, you know, still a lot of people don't have it. But for those who do have it, you know, it's this great conduit into all of a sudden you're seeing these great stars, as you say, beamed into your home. And, the you know, Sunday night at the London Palladium is one of the most watched shows in the calendar to be followed only a few weeks later by the Royal Variety performance. So these two, these two events are ring-fenced, if you like, in the imagination of the public. To see all these big stars in your living room and, and everybody would sit round, Ma and Pa, Mum and Dad, um, maybe Gran and Gra- Grandpa and the kids, and they would all sit round together to watch these two shows. The difference with the ones for 1963 is that 
You know, it's, it's, it's only natural that parents and, and their children often differ over popular music, but it would be the first opportunity, I think, that the parents would be able to see it firsthand exactly what it was that were getting their kids so excited. Mm. You know, all of a sudden, you know, they're not, this is not the Sex Pistols, you know. These are four young guys with their mohair suits on. Everybody talks about the long hair. The hair's not long at all, you know, even for the time. I think that's exaggerated somewhat. But you see them all suited and booted, playing some, I mean, there's Paul McCartney playing something like Till There Was You. So, you know, they were very switched on, you know, they, they played tunes on both shows for the youngsters, and there were also songs there that the parents could relate to. So I think it's important because it, suddenly in the eyes of their parents, they, they saw the Beatles as something something warm and welcoming, not something to be resistant to or afraid of. They saw four young guys, four young entertainers, and what's not to like? It's interesting. I mean, the two the two audiences are quite different. The, the audience for the Palladium show was more or less like a natural Beatles show, in a sense. There was a lot of screaming. Um, but when it came to the Royal Variety performance, you know, and they're further down the gig because Marlena Dietrich, quite rightly, is top of the bill, and the audience is much more sedate, and and that's a, and it's played they played in front of the Queen Mother and Queen Ma- uh, Princess Margaret, and that's of course where Lennon famously is able to take the temperature of the crowd um, and get away with his cheeky quip about rattle your jewelry. The thing that always stands out to me about the Royal Variety show, which I watched when I had those anthology videos as a younger man in the mid nineties, I used to watch it over and over again because it is almost in full in the anthology. George's guitar solo on Till There Was You in what Graham Thompson in his book about George calls finger-trembling conditions. You imagine the pressure, the nerves. Absolutely. And it is no perfect, that solo, on the one the one number, as they used to call it, that really has that mass appeal. He, he, George nails that, doesn't he, that solo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a great fan of that book, incidentally. I, I think it's a really excellent book. Yeah, I mean, George, George has come in for a lot of stick over the years from various people. I don't see that. I think he was a magnificent guitar player for the for the Beatles, you know, four sides of the square they always talk about. Uh, and you're absolutely right. His performance that night is absolutely sublime, finger perfect. And it's not it's not an easy solo to play. And as you say, he's the youngest of the band. Mm. And, and the pressure would have been significant, I think, you know, but uh, he really doesn't put a finger wrong, does he? No, absolutely not. Yeah, just, just to conclude, Ken, I think it's interesting to look at the the kind of clues that 1963 lay in relation to 1964. Um, so many of the adventures that the Beatles would, would go through in 64, films, America, et cetera, et cetera. Your book details that quite a lot of these are actually in place. They're in motion already during 1963. Tell us a little bit about how the foundations for 64 are set up in 63. Well, it's interesting, Joe. I tried to take the view that if I could if I could find so, something that I didn't know before, and incidentally, there are people out there whose knowledge easily far surpasses mine. But you know, when you when you stumbled across something that perhaps wasn't very well known, for example, everybody talks about the, the American tour as being a, a pivotal moment, and it was. But it's often forgotten about how the fact that they also went to Australia in 1964 and were met with crowds that were really not even America could match. Mm. But the roots for that tour in Australia 
happened in the summer of 1963 through a, co a combination of circumstances. If you like happy accidents, because Brian, one of Brian, Brian Epstein's great assets was he was a magnificent networker. I mean, they were looking to, you know, expand their horizons beyond the UK. And although there had been talk about America, it's actually the subject of Australia, which comes up first before anybody really dials down into the nitty gritty of could we actually go to America? Mm. And the reason partly for that is because Capital in America, the record label, wanted nothing to do with them. You know, they completely snubbed them throughout for most of 1963 uh, until the very end. I mean, you know, She Loves You was snubbed. Please Please Me was snubbed. You know, they didn't want anything to do with them. They said they would not sell in that market. But for me, what was absolutely fascinating, in a sense, was the synchronicity, if you like, behind the foundations for the American tour. I mean, it's one of these unbelievable twists of fate that the second album is released on the same day as JFK is assassinated. Mm. And on that morning, Walter Cronkite, I think it was CBS, they had a clip of the Beatles appearing in Bournemouth, I think, and, and they played this. Obviously, this is before Kennedy was was killed and they played this as a clip on the morning show uh, as a novelty to more or less make fun of them you know with the hair and the screams and the and the idea was that this was this was the equivalent of pinning the tail on the donkey you know putting a, a kiss on a pig it was the novelty the last segment on the news bulletin which is always this moment of ridicule if you like and they showed it and then the idea was that it would be shown again throughout the day as the last piece of news on the news bulletins. And then, of course, feet stepped in and, you know, they were overtaken by events, quite rightly. And that particular segment was wrapped in a canister and thrown into a dusty archive, mm. never to be seen again. And it was only maybe four weeks later where America still wearing this elegiac veil, if you like, for JFK, that Walter Cronkite suddenly remembers this film of these four weird long-haired young guys from, from England and, and he th thinks maybe this could help bring the country out of its funk. So he resurrected the film canister, got the film out and they, and they played it again and in a sense, you know, the Beatles became uh, the antidote in the short term to America's grief mm. uh, and it did help but I did like the, the happy circumstances behind the accident of fate if you like, because Watching that show the second time around uh, was this young girl in Washington, Marsha Albert, and she was blown away. By it. She didn't think it was funny. She was blown away by the power of, of the music. I think it was She Loves You was the clip. Mm. And that night wrote to her local DJ, uh, Carol James, and just asked him, said, why can't we have more bands like that on American radio? Carol James had never heard of them. But, you know, uh, following the man sort of, keeping the customer satisfied, he then tracked down a copy of, an imported copy of I Want to Hold Your Hand, I think it was, mm. um, which was the fourth single that came out in 63, played it on the radio, and of course, you know, the switchboard lit up, and, and that was really the moment where, in a sense, Olympus fell. What a brilliant way to, to conclude, Ken. Thank you so much for, for coming back on. The book is Shake It Out Baby. Thanks so much for your time. Well, Joe, listen, thank you very much for your support and your kind words. I do think your your podcast is easily 
one of the best, if not the best out there. It's in a league of its own, you know, and I'd like to say thanks on behalf of the band and myself. 